Yes, welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Welcome to a special Advent podcast. I'm doing a short little Advent series. This is teaching number two. And maybe the subtitle is uh, The Wilderness. The subtitle is The Wilderness. And um, special thanks to Jonas, my son, who made me a little Advent beat to go at the beginning of this podcast, so thanks. Um, yeah, I, uh, as I said last week, in last week's podcast, I felt kind of a tug, kind of a pull to return to the Advent season, to the Advent texts themselves, the traditional scriptural readings, to the sacred texts, just to turn my attention again, to open up my ears and my heart and my mind to the traditional and ancient wisdom here hidden in in both the rhythm, meaning the cycle, the the Christian calendar cycle, and also hidden in the in the text themselves. I find it very interesting the kinds of passages that that have helped organize life for 1,500 years minimum, 1,700 years, depending on what tradition we're talking about here. Uh, but the these readings are really old, for one thing, and their placement in the Christian imagination, in the cultural imagination, is very interesting. At the darkest time of year, we return to these Advent texts, and very strangely, last week's was about Apocalypse, this week is about John the Baptist. And I say strangely because the question is something like, what are we being being invited to listen to? And as modern, sophisticated, 21st century people, religious, non-religious, what's still here? Why? Why are why return? And part of the answer to this question is I don't know. I don't know what. And personally, if I speak personally, why the pull again? It's not just nostalgia. It's not like, hey, um, it's the time of year again where I'm supposed to feel nostalgic. I don't really think that's it. I think it's that the organizing symbols act like a rudder in the vast open See, that is our that is modern life, and and maybe I want to say something before I read today's text. So my hope is to read the text without a lot of commentary, and then then to make some commentary, just to talk a bit about what's the story here, what's the context, and what's the symbol, what's the what's the symbol, and and then questions of what we might be. Um, at least what I'm hearing. So before I turn to the text, just to, just to comment on on the division of time between sacred time and ordinary time. This is in every ancient religious and spiritual culture that I've ever studied. There is a kind of division between ordinary time and sacred time. And I think that's one of the things that modern people have just outright rejected. 
for a variety of reasons. Some of them in the name of sort of spiritual insights, like, well, isn't all time sacred? Sort of like saying, well, we reject sacred places, all places are sacred. And there's some profound truth to that. Maybe there's a kind of paradoxical truth there, sort of like my uh, friend Pete Rollins likes to say about about the burning bush in the Moses story, like Moses experiences the burning bush in a particular place so as to open up to the that all of nature, all of life is sacred, all ground is holy. But there's something strange about that because we want to immediately jump to the intellectual conclusion like all ground is holy, um, all the trees are on fire, so to speak, um, which it, which strangely creates a kind of flat world, like, well, all things are sacred, which is not very far from saying, well, nothing is sacred. And maybe it's more important to ask, what, where are the divisions in life? And, um, and maybe even push back against a lot of uh, non-dual talk. A lot of talk, a lot of super special spiritual talk right now about the non-dual and um, what non-dual experience is really like. And very quickly, very quickly in these circles, there's an immediate division between dualism and non-dualism, which is which is funny, between the non-dual and the dual. So-and-so is being dualistic, which itself is a dualistic statement. So it's like it, it tends to collapse in on itself. Um, and I'm not saying there's there there's not something to to listen to with the great non-dual teachers or those who describe non-dual experience. That's probably a better way of saying it. But really, there's no divisions in life. There's Everything is the same. All time is the same. Um, either all time is sacred or all time is secular. It's all flat. And I and I think no, uh, human beings, since the first cave paintings in France, there are other older cave paintings, but the ones I'm thinking of in France have, at least with um, space, have have called some places sacred and other places maybe more ordinary. And from some of the oldest calendars ever found in archaeology, like the Gezer calendar, uh, which was found in, in Israel, marks the seasons. Like, nope, there's a division. There's, there, there are seasons, and they're marked by the stars and by the harvest and, and can be entered into um, the posture that one enters into the sacredness of time can be done so in a sacred manner. And maybe all I mean by sacred right now is gratitude, humility, wonder, awe, um, a sense of dependency. This is what marking days and times and seasons and calendars um, help activate in us. And so there's a lot of really, really old, hard-earned wisdom from our ancestors, um, those in our own uh, tradition and those outside of our own tradition, a lot of hard-earned wisdom of marking times and seasons. It's like it's like the it's like um, our the week itself right now. Um, 
being marked by the weekend, by Saturday and Sunday, which was rooted in Shabbat, in the Sabbath, that six days a week you'll do ordinary work, and one day a week will be sacred, will be set apart, will be holy, um, to help you reconnect to what matters, to orient your life around um, something other than buying and selling and commerce and work and hand to the plow and pecking order and hierarchy and, um, you know, the almighty dollar. At least one day a week, say no. That's what Shabbat is about. And more than that, the Christian calendar says, and there are times of year where we begin to have a different kind of conversation. And the genius is that every year we return to these texts and they cast a certain light on our modern lives and and they use certain provocative symbols and images that are that provoke us, that are evocative, that that call to us from the depths, from the past, from from the unconscious, from the underworld, from the mysteries. And and they crash into our ordinary uh, lives and our ordinary sense of time. You know, I uh, I have a puppy right now, and I'm like, I can't believe how difficult it is. You know, I'm a cliche. Uh, I have a, a you know a pandemic puppy, like so many other families. Um, but anyway, like I couldn't sleep the other night because. The dog was up, and I turned on the TV, and 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 the news was on, and and it was the middle of the night, and I thought, oh, the ticker at the bottom of the screen is still moving in the middle of the night. There it goes, just um, twenty-four hours a day without ceasing. This is urgent. 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 No break. Just um. And the question is, what does that do to the, to the human spirit, to the human soul, to our deeper longings, to, to what I would think of, what, what I believe, as the deep longing that we all have for the sacred, for the holy, for the set apart, for meaning? Um, what does it do when everything is the same and everything has the same level of urgency? Is there no break? Is there no Sabbath from the onslaught? Uh and not that long ago, I went to Vegas and had a similar kind of thought about Vegas. I've, I'd never been there before. And it's just interesting that if it's three in the morning or three in the afternoon, it makes no difference. It, whatever it is never stops. You know, it's, you have access to the exact same thing. You can dump your money in the exact same machines and get the exact same result. No matter what, 24 hours a day, whether it's 65 degrees or 116 degrees, um, you, you're in this climate-controlled environment that never stops. You know, what does that do to the human spirit? And I, I really think there's some ancient wisdom to Shabbat and to the rhythms of the year, the sacred rhythms of the year that we need, that... Um, help point the way. So, um, yeah, that's a lot of me uh, uh, kind of riffing here, and I, and I want to get to the reading today. So, as promised, let me find it here, 
Matthew chapter 3 is what I'm going to be reading from. And uh, maybe before I begin, it's important to just simply say, what do you hear? That is the most important question when it comes to, or the primary question, the first question, um, when it comes to listening to sacred scriptures and texts and poems and musings, uh, what do you hear? What resonates? What stands out? What nudges you? Sometimes what, what bothers you a little bit, because there's, oftentimes there's something in, the, in, in what makes us uncomfortable about it that is worth turning our attention to. And um, I think part of, part of the, the ask of modern people the world over in the 21st century is to be more, um, well, I was about to say inclusive, but that's kind of a, um, yeah, certain political and social overtones right now. But um, the global village asks us in a certain way to be more open. And oftentimes, like, I find myself being open to other traditions like Buddhism and which I've had an attraction to for a long time. And, and, and of course, Judaism, which pulled me to, to live in Israel for a while. Um, but I don't often have the same sort of uh, openness to my own tradition, although I feel like that that's changing now, now that I, maybe I'm over 40. And so I don't know, what do I hear? What am I curious about? What, am, what if I open myself up to, um, to these words and to my tradition in a kind of a radically humble way as, and bring some consciousness to that? So that's what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm listening and I encourage you to do the same. What do I hear? What do I resonate with? What rings my bell? So um, here's the passage. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand 
and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. God, what a text, what a fire, what a passion, what a wild ass of a man out here in the Judean wilderness, spewing uh, his own kind of fire and, um, and his own kind of warning and his own kind of threat and his own kind of invitation, telling people, change, <laughs> stop doing what you're doing. You know, I, the televangelist, um, you know, for obvious reasons, gets a bad rap um, because they they yell at people and then ask people for money. Um, but where who are these voices that are yelling change? You know, change, um, repent, change your mind. Um, the way you've been going is the wrong way. You know, that's 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 that powerful pro- prophetic tradition of which John the Baptist uh, finds himself and is channeling and is inspired by and is, um, uh, is passing and moving through him. And uh, so maybe just a few things here. Uh, the first is maybe a general question that I don't intend to ask. Or uh, I intend to ask it, but I don't intend to answer it. Why return each year to this passage? That's just interesting to me. Like, wouldn't it get old? <laughs> Um, why return to it every year? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And um, why might we want to return to it now? Um, what might it be saying to us in the in the twenty first century? So, um, yeah. So let me just make a few co- uh, um, comments here. First, what's the story? Then a little bit of context. I won't go into great detail. And then what I think that some of the key symbols are here. So in terms of the story, Matthew here is uh, writing to a Jewish audience and there is um, effort made on his part to put Jesus within the larger prophetic tradition here. And, and of course, the messianic prophetic tradition, the prophets who said there will come a day when the Son of Man, the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, will uh, visit Israel and will begin to turn the hearts of Israel back to God um, and will set things to right in some way and will be a figure of justice and mercy and challenge. And especially in John the Baptist's sense here, what he's calling it will, will be a person of judgment. You know, often we think about, about Jesus. He's, you know, he's like the, the kind guy that never judges. No, not really. Um, particularly when it comes to religious people, full of judgment. Judgment is, again, that, that impulse that says this and not that. It's not flat land of, hey, who am I to say, you know? Nope, it's this and not that. It's uh, that's wrong. This is right. Um, and, and sometimes not a lot of nuance. So, um, yeah, when it, so when it comes to um, the overall story here, 
Matthew is trying to say Jesus didn't come out of the blue here. He's part of a tradition. And John the Baptist was a wildly popular figure. Josephus, um, uh, Jewish turned Roman historian, has more to say about John the Baptist than about Jesus. So he's really, really popular, well-known. This movement of baptizing excuse me, of repentance and baptism down by the Jordan River and, and probably in other places in Israel was wildly popular and spread around and, and his followers went um, far and wide all over um, the Roman Empire. So uh, Matthew is saying something is happening. This prophet, wild man figure, John the Baptist that you've all heard of, um, Jesus, who's related to him, goes down and is baptized by him. John the Baptist, in all of his preaching, one is coming, one is coming, one is coming, that is um, the person of Jesus. So he's trying to, to set the story in this kind of larger unfolding narrative of anticipation that the Jewish people were carrying. And what exactly the Jewish people were anticipating is not easy to answer. Maybe you've heard me say that before, but messianic expectations were were quite diverse. You had different kinds of Jewish groups. You had Sadducees and Pharisees and Essenes and and those that were just sort of zealot-like, um, not to mention a few other groups that I won't, won't get into um, at present. But none, uh, you know, no Jewish group could decide exactly what was meant by the promised Messiah. And that makes it interesting. You know, is it a symbol? Is it a physical person? Is it a warrior? Is it a king? Is it a priest? You know, different different uh, groups drew different conclusions around or had different levels of expectation, but doesn't matter. Matthew is saying, within this spirit of anticipation, under the thumb of Rome right now, um, John the Baptist uh, steps onto the scene and not only is preaching, change your mind, repent, turn around, He's um, he's the one that is preceding the Messianic age, um, the age of salvation and um, liberation and freedom, and um, and a different sort of kingdom than the one you're presently living under. So. Um, that's kind of where things fall in the story, and I think it's interesting. I mean, you could say in a kind of a direct way, why is this passage read during Advent? Because we're anticipating the birth of Jesus, that's why. And this is an, an anticipatory kind of text, but it's one that has something specific in mind. And that is, how does one anticipate the coming one? Or if you want to broaden that idea a, a bit and say, um, how does one anticipate transcendence, contact with the divine, a larger vision, a bigger picture? How does one get ready? Well, John the Baptist is the kind of person that says, well, don't just go about your ordinary life. That eating and drinking and being merry and paying your taxes and doing what you're told and um, falling in line and being a cultural um, uh, a slave to cultural trends and traditions and timelines and time frames and now let's extend that to the modern age um you know uh i don't know however you might describe the the machine that is modern life john the baptist is saying if you want to anticipate um a different kind of kingdom and get ready you got to change 
And that's such a powerful message, change. That, that's what the word metanoia means in Greek, uh, to change your mind, to swap out your mind for a new mind. If you want to use real contemporary language, you need a new consciousness. And part of the process of your consciousness expanding is you have to change, swap out, repent, get rid of your uh, the prison that that is your present consciousness that's keeping you stuck. Change. You know, it's probably rooted in, in a Hebrew word here. I, I don't imagine John the Baptist was speaking Greek, but if he was speaking Hebrew, the word is teshuvah, which means to turn around. So very similar. Swap out your mind, a little more Greek orientation. Greeks were more, a little more into the mind. Teshuvah, um, uh, Hebrew is a little bit more body oriented, and it's walk in a different direction. And, th- and, and I, I want to ask the question and not answer it. What right now? Right now, in your world, in your life, in your family, um, in your community, needs to go in a different direction. And let's make it even more personal, because there's something radical about what John the Baptist is doing on the individual level. What do you need to change? What do you need to say, nope, this is not the direction I'm going to walk in anymore? And, 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 and to say, this is part of like, the, the notion of repenting of sin. I have missed the mark. I have been blind. I have been willfully blind in some sense. And it's time for me to change. It's time for me to walk in a different direction. And I know it. And the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, get ready. I can hear that. I can hear it echoing down through the canyons of time down to the present moment, down to my little office here in my house in Ada, Michigan, um, in December 2021. Change your mind, you know. Um, Your present consciousness, uh, something of it needs to go into the grave and be transformed. Or, to use John the Baptist imagery, needs to go down into the water to be transformed into into the uh, waters of life and of chaos. It's a mixture. And come out the other side. Um, so uh, maybe just a few more things on context. Shuva here to, to turn around um, and go in a different direction. Metanoia to change your mind. What else is happening on the contextual level here? I think it's important to say that and to recognize that John the Baptist is technically a priest. We know that from because he has his own birth narrative story, and his dad is a priest, and he comes from a priestly family. And um, and what should a priest be doing? A priest should be in the temple doing priestly duties, waving incense, sprinkling blood, collecting money, um, wearing a white robe, singing special songs, you know, the religious establishment. And John the Baptist is one of those people that culture needs i think that breaks that mold and he and he says no and he wears camel's clothing instead of a white robe which priests were supposed to wear and he eats what he finds on the ground and he eats honey and um and bugs and is down by the river side and He's, his beard is grown out and his hair is long and he, he seems to have a kind of Nazarite vow. That's from uh, Numbers chapter, oh, geez, I don't remember right now. 
in the book of Numbers, there's something called the Nazarite vow where you don't cut any uh, any hair on your head, uh, meaning, and Rosh in Hebrew is, is just the whole head. So beard, hair, just think about it, a wild man out there yelling, you vipers, what are you doing down here? Finally, people of his own social class, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, come down to him because they're really just two classes in the ancient world, everybody else and the upper class. There's no middle class. And definitely the Sadducees, but probably also the Pharisees are, are a little bit more uh, of, the, of the upper class, the elite. And um, they come down to see what John the Baptist is, is up to. And he says, look at a bunch of snakes have come down here. Who warned you, <laughs> you know, of the coming wrath? Um, and then he tells them, produce fruit, do something, you know, um, re- produce fruit in keeping with repentance. But anyway, my main, my main point here in terms of context is that he's a priest and he breaks that pattern. And, um, and, it, and not only cracks his world open, but everyone that he comes in contact with. It's like it's like he's pushing against the entire system, saying, don't go to the temple, come out here to the wilderness. Come out here to the desert. Come out here to where it all began from a Jewish point of view, where we first met God, or to use uh, prophetic language, where, where God courted us in the desert like a lover. And that was both bitter and sweet, where we tasted honey from the rock. That's that paradox of the sort of uh, desert consciousness, where where we encountered the mystery of the divine on Mount Sinai and got some words of instruction. You know, the the desert is this um, terribly beautiful place in Jewish consciousness, and 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 John the Baptist saying is, we need the desert now. Enough of the status quo, and he's embodying that in in the way he dresses and speaks and where he's performing this um, sacred rite of passage, which is what's happening here. So baptism, there's a lot of speculation about um, what is baptism because there's something in, in Judaism called uh, the mikvah, which is um, can be a noun or a verb, and it's a bath. It's a ritual bath, and you need to do mikvah before you go to synagogue, before you go to uh, any kind of holy place, before a marriage, before certain ceremonies. Um, before and especially before you go into the temple, outside the temple, there were hundreds of mikvot that they found. These are ritual baths uh, in archaeology along the southern steps of the Temple Mount um, itself. And you had to do you had to do a kind of full immersion. You took your clothes off; they're covered, and you go in and and you immerse yourself, and you come back out, and you put on your clothes, and you enter the temple. and And it's a way of ritually purifying your own body, like. Um, ancient religions were were so earthy compared to, um, you know, something like modern religion, like like saying a mental creed, you know, out loud. Now, there's an out loud. I suppose that's a body oriented thing to say it in a group. Um, so that's true. But there's less of, especially in the Protestant tradition, maybe not so much in Orthodox and Catholic circles, but less of the real body. I mean, imagine if every time you had to walk into a church building, for example, you had to get completely naked, go underground, go into the underworld, so to speak, wash in the sacred waters and come back out. So there's a little bit of that in the background here, the contextual background of John the Baptist baptizing. But I actually think um, he's playing with the symbol of Exodus much more than the symbol of mikvot here, of ritual 
uh, purity, because you can do that anywhere. Why go down to the Jordan River? Well, the Jordan River represents for the Jewish people the place from where they cross from the desert into the promised land. And this is the kind of message that, that John is saying. He's saying a promised kingdom. And again, if you want more contemporary language, a new consciousness is dawning. A new Christ consciousness is dawning, you could even say. Um, a way of seeing the world that is both divine and human. That's partly what I mean by Christ consciousness. And, um, or a consciousness transformed by, by, uh, by concrete experience with, with God, with the mystery, you could say. This is dawning, it's happening, but you're locked in a way of being. You're locked in the old world. You're locked in slavery. You're still in Egypt or you're still wandering around the desert. Stop doing that. Go down in the immersive waters of the Jordan River as our, as our ancestors did and be purified and come out the other side to the promised land. That's what he's recapitulating here. That's what he's calling people to, again, again a voice of one calling in the wilderness, get ready, you know change your mind, what needs to go. And I've been saying for a long time on my podcast and in my teachings at C3 that my view is the 21st century and the election and our polarized system here and the, the slippage that of our major institutions of stability like church and, and economy and... Um, um, an education system, as everything becomes more fragmented in a way, um, it's time for a searching spiritual inventory. That's the phrase I've been using. It's time for a searching spiritual inventory. And there's a kind of genius here in the Advent season. When? Right now. Right before the birth or the dawning of a new consciousness. Time to clean the house. Time to clean the basement time to go inside and do some examination. And the amazing thing about baptism here is that it's individually rooted. That there, maybe this is part of the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition, that real change begins with an individual. It's not group. It's not mass baptism here. It's not mass sprinkling. It's who's getting in the water one at a time. And maybe, maybe, maybe part of you thinks, hey, isn't that a bit individualistic? And I say, yes, but I mean it positively. The individuation process, it begins at home. Clean your house. Do your own searching spiritual inventory. Change your mind. Repent. Say, I've, I've strayed from my own values and my own path. Get down into the waters and let the mysteries do, it, do, uh, let the mysteries do their work. And... and and here we're already in the symbolic terrain because water is that kind of chaos and order that is the first day of creation where something is swirling and the spirit, the wind, this is using Genesis imagery here, begins to call forth order out of the chaos. And there's a re-entering the chaos and you could even say a re-entering the womb of the underworld, the womb of the earth, the womb of God, our own inner womb, back into darkness, back into the watery abyss to come out the other side, not only just cleansed ritually, but with eyes to see the dawning of a new kingdom. That's the imagery here. And, um, and, and maybe one other thing here, there's something... Um, 
apocalyptic here, to echo back to last week. Uh, apocalypse means to reveal. And there's something being revealed here. And this is what the prophets were so go- good at. If you don't change, you're going to be burned. Now, I'm not meaning necessarily some kind of literal hell that God's going to you know, throw you into hell and burn you up. No, I just mean if you are going in a way that is self-destructive and destructive to the community, destructive to the earth, destructive to the whole, to the systems, um, instead of walking the, the path of wholeness and healing or whatever kind of division you want to make, back to that the necessity of making divisions between sacred and secular and between ordinary time and sacred time, um, back to those divisions, uh, there are going to be consequences and it's going to hurt. And there's going to be a lot of unnecessary suffering. And, um, and watch out, you know. Um, this is, in a way, it's, There's a kind of karma here that's being preached. That if you continue this path, um, you'll be burned. You'll be burned up by an unquenchable fire. So um, he's not messing around. John the Baptist is not messing around. This isn't just like for, you know, just kind of your private enlightenment. You know, hey, just like... Hey, yeah, you got to think about changing because, you know, you, you'll feel better and there'll be a better well-being. No, it's like change or burn, you know. And I used to mock that idea, pr- probably because in Baptist circles, we literalized everything. And it was like, we used, we used to joke and call it the turn or burn theology, like turn or God's going to burn you, you know. And, and we threw out the whole symbol, you know, by rejecting the literalism of it. And, um, but the symbol itself has some power. And... Um, and you think about what in our culture is like that right now. We continue on a certain path. Um, like I, I'm, I'm trying to stop use, using the word climate change because I think it's too ambiguous and it's not very helpful. It's like, it's just, it's, it's like the, the most general thing. I believe in climate change. Okay. Like, and like, what are you talking about? It's just too general. But what about ecological collapse. And that's even too general. What if we got down to something very specific like water t- uh, water table collapse, if, if I can use such a phrase, or the poisoning of our own streams. Now we're talking about something very specific. And we're talking about an apocalypse. We're talking about revealing something that our actions have consequences. And all of a sudden it goes from, um, from barely... Uh, um, what's the right word, detectable to uh, poisoning everything, you know. That's that. You go through the list um, of if we continue on certain paths, culturally, politically, uh, ecologically, um, uh, whatever, when is the fire going to get too big, so to speak? And that's the prophet. That's the role of the prophet to warn of these things, to yell of these things, to wear to wear camel's clothing and say, "You bunch of snakes, you know, do something, change your mind, quit uh, following the status quo." So that's kind of what I'm hearing a bit uh, in these apocalyptic invitations uh, at the beginning here of Advent. Um, and maybe one more thing along the symbolic lines that that is important to say. Uh, 
the image that Pharisees and Sadducees are coming down is a pointer toward tradition itself. And even Jesus says positive things about the Pharisees. He also challenges them, but he says, he says that, um, that Pharisees sit in Moses' seat and you ought to listen to, to them, but just don't practice what they... Or uh, you ought to listen to them, but don't do as they do because they don't practice what they preach. That's a line from, from Jesus here. And um, so he's saying that tradition, and this is my interpretation, that tradition has something to offer. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees with their, uh, who were kind of the guardians of, of um, Jewish tradition, particularly like um, the tradition of what later gets called the tradition of the rabbis. They're the keepers of this. Rabbi so-and-so says to Rabbi so-and-so, and this is what in Judaism is called the, the oral law, the law that was passed on by mouth, not just the written law. Um, here they come. And, and why is John the Baptist speaking like this? Because there's a kind of insight here that tradition always tends to go blind, always tends toward not practicing what it preaches, tends toward being protectors of phrases and words and doctrines and rules and laws, but becomes blind in its adherence to those things um, and often lifeless. This is the image of the blind um, father. And that's in the uh, Osiris myth. It's just oddly enough, I just had a dream two nights ago where I was in an Israeli shop and, and I met an old Arab that I know uh, named Shaban and he was blind. And I woke up and I was like, oh my God, that's like such a, a symbol, the blind father. And now, <laughs> those of you who know something about dreams are, might, might ask a clever question. What part of me is blind right now? You know, what part of me is blind, a blind adherence to tradition? And what tradition, you know? Anyway, we don't need to, you know, uh, analyze my own dream right this second. But it's a very old symbol. And, um, and one of the things that tradition needs are outsiders, are, is the archetype of John the Baptist, the wild man, the camel's hair, um, the edge of the village, the shaman, the mystic, the wanderer, the, the, the one who's fed by ravens and not on a, on a silver platter that kind of thing. And they need each other. <clears throat> because the way to, um, to a healthier culture is to redeem the blind. And that's in the very image of the coming Messiah from the Jesus imagery. Those who, uh, the, the coming one will make the blind see. You know, I mean, you can literalize that, and Jesus did a lot of uh, healing when it comes to blindness. But the image that the that tradition itself needs to see, needs to be rescued and redeemed, is more of what's at work here. And how is that going to happen? Well, oftentimes through threats and wildness and the edge of the village clashing into one another. It's in the same way like the desert fathers and mothers lived within close proximity of Alexandria and Egypt, you know, so you have the center of, of culture and you have the, the outliers, you know, but, the, but it's in the clash between the two that the possibility for change, I think, begins to emerge. So you might ask a question like, um, am I feeling a bit of the John the Baptist archetype rising up right now? Maybe I'm feeling called, maybe I'm feeling the calling of the, of the voice from the wilderness, 
Maybe you're feeling a bit of the call toward the wilderness. After all, um, sometimes the only way to hear the wind, and that's what John the Baptist is promising, the Spirit here, the only way to hear the wind is to be out in the wind, you know, Um, and not in our comfortable climate-controlled zones in our cars and houses and so forth. That's that John the Baptist. Maybe you're feeling that tug, or or maybe you're feeling um, this kind of... uh, Pull to the desert is another way of saying it. Um, maybe, maybe you're sensing your own blindness and and a kind of longing for awakening, and the desert is beckoning. So, what are you going to do? Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to follow? Um, maybe you're being led to the wilderness. That's that. That's the symbol for this week. There's a voice of one calling right now in the 21st century. Get ready, prepare the way, come on out to the wilderness, um, let go of, clean out, repent, and be uh, dunked into these transformative waters. That's the thing. And why we need to hear that? Well, it, it almost, the question answers itself. <laughs> um, because we need a new consciousness, because uh, transformation matters, and and it begins within with individuals. I think is part of uh, the allure here. So, um, maybe one other word here. It's contextual. It's kenosis, which is a kind of self-emptying. It's a word that's used of Jesus later in in the New Testament. Um, he emptied himself. Uh, kenosis. And uh, the pull of the desert is, is related to this, in my, in my view. Self-emptying. Uh, walking out there with nothing, so to speak. So the question is, maybe, where are you in? Where do you find yourself in this story? What are you hearing? Um, what's calling to you? What, what might that look like this Advent season? To spend a little time in the wilderness, to do a little self-emptying, to, to clean the out the closet and the basement to do a searching moral inventory to ask, is there anything that I need to repent from? I'm good old fashioned repentance to change my mind, to swap it out, to say, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, you know, yeah. What do you, what do you hear? What, what, what pulls to you? So, um, maybe that's where I want to end, um, today's Advent, Advent teaching number two, the wilderness, Uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this. Special thanks to my Patreon supporters for making this podcast happen. I can't thank you enough. Really, I'm deeply deeply grateful. So um, wishing you all well uh, in the coming days and weeks. And uh, I'll be back with another Advent podcast next week. Peace.